Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, January 20th, 2019. My name is James Marino. In the broadcast today, we have Jenna Tessa Fox, Michael Portantier, and Jan Simpson. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose articles have appeared at Time at New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and NewYorkTheaterGuide.com. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning, James. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm recovering from the Broadway con flu, you know, so it's all good now. Good to hear. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, you, you are not the only person who, I mean, at first I thought you were joking. But no, no. I, lots of people that I had uh, spoken with uh, got sick after Broadway con. Yeah. And uh. So it must have been some sort of Petri dish. We should have stayed out of the ball pit, you know, the Chuck E. Cheese ball pit that they had at Broadway <laughs> I con. I knew that was a bad idea. Yeah, and uh, the volunteer kissing booth probably wasn't so much. <laughs> All right. Uh, also with us, uh, you heard the voice of Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the director of the Arts and Culture Journalism pro- Program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY and also writes for TDF Stages in American Theater and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Good morning, Jan. Good morning. Good morning. So, um, uh, we, we, we saw each other just a mere seven days ago in person at the Broadway Con, and it was, Wasn't uh, that fun? It was a lot of fun. It was, yes. It yeah. was. It was good to see everybody face to face, and uh, it was uh, the, you know, the podcast came in at just an hour exactly, and that was exciting <laughs> that we weren't ejected from the room uh, before we finished. That was all good. And there were cookies. There were cookies. There were lots of cookies. And uh, and there was Matt and Natalie. Matt and yes. Natalie and Peter, and, uh, yeah. and it was a lot of fun. Oh, I should say, Peter is in Atlanta uh doing something, uh, Junior Theater Festival or something like that in Atlanta right now. But we will have trivia at the end, so do stay tuned. Um, and Michael, after Broadway Con, you couldn't get enough of the live audience, could you? <laughs> no, I got to do uh, an interview and Q&A with Santino Fontana, so I can talk about that a little bit. Sure. So uh, um, <clears throat> it's always good to hang out with Santino. We have some good stories out of there. But the main part of uh, us being together this morning is that we are talking about some reviews that we haven't had in a few weeks. So let's get caught up here. Jan, Michael, and Jenna all got a chance to see Choir Boy. I'm seeing it this coming week uh, coming up. And uh, so, Jan, why don't you get us started on Choir Boy? Choir Boy is by uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney, um, who... Uh, many people will know as the author of the Oscar-winning movie uh, Moonlight. And Choir Boy was written, I believe, before uh, the play that Moonlight was was based on. It ran uh, in a slightly different production about four or five years ago at Manhattan Theater Club's uh, smaller location and has now moved to Broadway 
where I believe it will be playing through February 24th. This is a play that's set in uh, an all-boys school. Uh, It's a black uh, uh, boys' school, and it centers on one um, character. He has an unusual name, so I'm trying to (laughs) get his name. Ferris, is that how we say it? Ferris? Ferris, who is uh, the lead singer and, and sort of president of the school's choir, which it's uh, famous for and which means a great deal uh, to him. And Ferris is, um, from his, his, his gestures, his, his mannerisms, we're, we're, we're it's suggested, it's heavily suggested that he's gay. And while the, when the play opens, it opens at the graduation of the class before his, and Farris, as the incoming president of this choir, is supposed to be singing. And while he's singing, one of his classmates uh, starts whispering comments to, bullying comments, uh, belittling uh, comments to throw him off, off beam. And the play follows a year uh, the following year, as these young boys, Farris, his bully, uh, Bobby, um, are all trying t- to uh, graduate, of course, and also uh, come together and uh, in the choir. Um, it was... Uh, it was wonderfully and is wonderfully directed by Trip Coleman. Um, and I think the thing that people will take away uh, from this and, and remember is the marvelous uh, uh, choreography and choral numbers. Uh, the choreography is done by Camille A. Brown, who uh, has done a couple of other shows and Uh, is an interesting choreographer for uh, us to keep our eyes on. And intermittently throughout the show, although it's not a musical, the musical numbers really punctuate the emotions that the boys are feeling. They are primarily Negro spirituals. And what Ferris argues, uh, and I think the entire play argues, is that... One interpretation, the the traditional interpretation of Negro spirituals is that they were used as messages between um, slaves and slaved people uh, before the Civil War to send messages to one another, to talk to one another. And Ferris uh, has a different take on them. He thinks that the songs themselves were the messages to the people to um, to be strong, to believe in themselves, to persevere, and he has a, a different take on the, uh, the the spirituals. Those numbers are terrific, and I actually very much liked and was moved by the play when I saw it um, off uh, Broadway. 
uh, it's coming of age, coming to terms with a young man, accepting uh, his uh, sexual orientation the way his various friends do. Some do in very surprising ways. Um, was 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 moving and was clearly delineated to me off Broadway. The Broadway production seems to me to be a bit nervous about um, uh, that line of 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 the show, and to it's it seemed muddier to me the storytelling. It seemed to want to ingratiate itself with the audience. There was a lot more humor. It's not that there wasn't humor in the earlier production, but a lot more humor, and the humor seemed pandering to me. And so I wasn't as happy with this production of Choir Boy as I was with the earlier one. All right. So, uh, Jenna, what do you think about Choir Boy? Uh, I quite enjoyed it. I did not get to see the uh, off-Broadway production, so this was my first exposure to the script. So uh, this is yeah, this is basic Becky's take on Choir Boy. Um, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the piece. Uh, it's a I thought it was a lovely play about growing up and finding your place in the world. I thought uh, the play addressed a lot of issues that sometimes we don't see as often in uh, as many plays, homophobia, self-respect, faith, masculinity, but it never seemed to me to get preachy. Uh, it just presented these characters that are going through different, uh, different issues with growing up and going from boys to men, quite literally, growing from boys to men, I should say, and how they're dealing with uh, their newfound adulthood or in, uh, encroaching adulthood. Uh, I thought McCraney's script worked best with what goes unsaid and what is in between the lines. And I think that fit Coleman's direction really wonderfully. The songs, which were a mixture of you know gospel, R&B, spirituals, they all complemented the story in a lot of different ways. And a lot of times the boys' reaction, like you said, in the choreography sometimes, really indicated their emotions and what they were feeling uh, sometimes at the end sometimes that's at odd with uh, at odds sorry with what they say to one another and I thought that was really effective it's not a musical per se but the show uses the music in the same way as a musical would to convey the unspoken emotion to convey the dreams and I thought that worked out quite beautifully for what is not technically a musical. Uh, I thought Jeremy Pope's performance as Farris was just heartbreaking. He's going through all the normal angst and agita of the teenage years. He's also got the extra challenges of being black, religious, and gay at the same time. He conveys all of that uh, inner tumult beautifully. And I, I am very excited that the show extended and that he's going straight from this production to, uh, um, oh, my gosh, I'm, what's the next show he's doing? Ain't we're, Too we're, Proud. Thank you. Ain't Too Proud. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm I'm going to theater person's hell for that one. I, wow. <laughs> but he's got like four days in between this incredibly <laughs> uh, intense show and then jumps right into the next. So I'm, I'm very impressed. Uh, I really enjoyed Clon John Clay the Third 
who plays Faris's roommate, Anthony, who really offers a good balance to a lot of the angst. Anthony is much more confident in his own skin, comfortable, and he's kinder as a result of it. And we can really get a sense of the boys who are uncomfortable with growing up and balancing all the different uh, all the different pieces of themselves are the ones who are lashing out, whereas he's fine and he reaches out. He's the peacemaker. And I really enjoyed seeing that balance that when you're comfortable and when you're confident, it's an, it's much easier to be kind and uh, to help people. Uh, and I've got to give a cheer to Chuck Cooper, who I thought was really, uh, it's a rather thankless role as the headmaster who's trying to keep the peace with all of his students. But at the same time, he's bound by the school's laws and he's limited in what he is allowed to do. And Austin Pendleton did a really nice job as Mr. Pendleton, uh, the one white actor on the stage, uh, a teacher who is kind of a thankless role, but he gets some really good moments, uh, trying to talk with the kids, listen to them. He's coming from a very different generation. And we start learning more things about his history and why he is so determined to work with this next generation that is coming up. And I thought that was very effective dramatically as well. I quite enjoyed the play. Uh, and I really enjoyed seeing a very diverse audience when I went to see it and hearing the responses uh, from the audience. They were very into it. And it was, you know, uh, it was a lot of older white people as well, but there were a lot of younger black people, and it was very enthusiastic from uh, from what I could see from all parties, and that was really that was exciting to see. I quite enjoyed the play, and I hope it can uh, it has a life after the Broadway run ends next month. Michael, what did you think? Yeah, well, I really loved the play when I saw it off Broadway, which, by the way, was longer ago than I realized. It was 2013. Uh, you know, this is another one of those cases where if you asked me, I would have said, oh, you know, I saw it a couple of years ago off Broadway. Michael, I, ju- but, I just found the uh, your review on This Week on Broadway. It was in, in uh, July of 2013. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember really raving about it. I, uh, I loved it. And of course, at that point, I... Um, uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney was far less famous than he is now in the wake of Moonlight. I think it's it's fantastic that he is giving uh, a voice to this specific world of, uh, well, young black gay men uh, and and that he you know, the fact that he won an Oscar for it uh, is really I, I, I that that's that's an incredible statement. I think that that shows uh, amazing progress that that he would write something like that to begin with. I'm talking about Moonlight now, and then have it rewarded like that. But Choir Boy came before that, as as we've said, and I think it's equally worthy. Uh, I think the Jeremy Pope character is fascinating and beautifully well played by him. Um, one uh, interesting thing about this play that we hadn't mentioned yet is that the chief bullier, uh, Bobby, uh, is supposed to be the nephew of the headmaster, uh, the Chuck Cooper character that that was, was mentioned there. So that, uh, you know, that obviously complicates things even more. Uh, Bobby, by the way, is played by uh, Jay Quinton Johnson. And it's about, uh, you know, I mean, c- kind of like the, the the politics we see in in organizations like that, you know, in, in uh, well, whether it's uh, just 
high school politics or you know high school government or uh, or um, high school plays uh, musicals or uh, in this case a choir um, to see these young people just negotiating these relationships uh, I, I think it's really really well done uh, and well directed by Trip Coleman I uh, I Love the way that the Austin Pendleton character is worked into it. I, I remembered one of the one of the most powerful moments of the off Broadway production was at one point Mr. Pendleton. Um, uh, he has a meltdown of the fact that that all of these uh, young black men keep using the N word, and he just goes off on that and saying it's an ugly word and how you know don't you realize that how we've you know we've fought so that you know against that word and blah blah, blah. and it's just um fascinating because of course he has a completely different perspective on it than they do uh and they just it doesn't occur to them they don't have a second thought about using that word but it every time he hears it it drives him up the wall and and eventually he winds up uh leaving um the school, the the school, and the choir, because he just he he's he just really can't deal with the situation there. Um, I I think it is a wonderful play. I'm glad it has made it to Broadway. I hope that it is uh, rewarded with nominations and and maybe even some awards at awards time. And uh, yes, I'm 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 really glad that uh, I had been saying uh, for a while that I that I had hoped. It would have another life, and I'm not sure why it took so long, but but I'm glad that it that it is on Broadway, and I think everyone should try to see it. Michael, the uh, previous off Broadway production was Manhattan Theater Club as well, wasn't it? Yes, um, and and they were off Broadway in uh, the space city on center, Fifty Fifth Street. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Um, we uh, have to wonder if it's uh, an issue of coordinating schedules more than anything else. Um, oh, probably. I mean, you know, uh, um, Terrell Alvin McCraney may have been busy with Moonlight. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. Uh, about a six-year, six-year uh, gestation between the off-Broadway and the Broadway production. Um, and several of the cast are different, par- partly for that reason, I think. Uh, but uh, we um, common to the off-Broadway production uh, are are at least three of the leads: Jeremy Pope, Chuck Cooper, and uh, Austin Pendleton. I actually think the only person who is new um, is the the roommate? young man who plays his former roommate. His former roommate, and I'll sort of uh, leave it yeah. at that. Cause uh-huh. So, um, did the aging of of these folks who had played it previously to current? You know, we just went through a a week full of hell and Facebook ten year challenges. This is the uh, Broadway off Broadway off uh, six year challenge. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, did we see a um, a different uh, look? by the the actors in what they were doing or or was this uh they picked it up six years later as though uh everything's the same well for the adults it didn't matter um uh jeremy pope to me still seemed eminently believable as a high school yeah he just all of them yeah yeah i mean it's theater we suspend our disbelief we don't expect 
It's very hard to get a 16-year-old onto the stage for an extended run. Um, there are all kinds of logistics involved in that. So we've grown to expect that you know a 21-year-old will be playing 16, a 25-year-old, in some cases, a 32-year-old will be playing 16. So I have no idea how uh, how old Mr. Pope is, but uh, it's you know suspension of disbelief. It's theater. Although I believe we are about to have, or I have we already answer. have, yeah. a sixteen-year-old. Yeah, okay. <laughs> He's, uh, he starts. No, no. Uh, he starts in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, his name escapes me. I met him at Broadway Con, um, oh, nice. but he New York Times just had a great article on him. What the heck's his name? Uh, he won the Jimmy Award uh, two years ago or last year. Uh, let's see, New Evan Hansen. His name is Broadway. Andrew Barth Feldman. That's right. He's cool. 16 years old. He starts. Uh, he starts. Uh, at take. He takes over the role of Evan on uh, on uh, January 30th. So, uh, and a great article in the New York Times this week. Well, I'll link to that in the show notes uh, for folks who wants who want to read this. This Andrew Barth Feldman profile. He's 16 years old. Goes to school on Long Island and is about to take over this role. And uh, but that's not to, not to discount what Jenna said because no, it is absolutely very, it is very unusual. And and actually, I I think there's been some discussion as to how that's going to fit in with the other casting uh, of the show. Mm-hmm. Well, because, you know, we we have a number of uh, of high school aged characters on Broadway in Mean Girls and Harry Potter and various other things played by older people. And I believe that I've seen a few <laughs> Gypsy of the Year uh, previous Broadway Cares Equity Fights Aids uh, skits on <laughs> on uh, adults playing teenagers uh, <laughs> as songs and things like that. So it's a, it's a very common theme on Broadway. Yeah, the uh, the vending oh. machines in these schools sell Activia and uh, Geritol. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, I can't wait till I get old. <laughs> all right. We're, notice we all say nothing, James. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I pay you not to say anything about me. <laughs> all your checks are in the mail. Thank you oh, so good. much. <laughs> Telling me how youthful I looked last week. You do. <laughs> all right. So uh, next up, uh, let's see. Jan and Mike. See, I have a J in the notes, and I have to think, was it Jan or Jenna? Or was it me? I forget. Uh, Jan, Jan and Michael both saw Blue Ridge at the Atlantic Theater Company. So, uh, Michael, you want to start us off with the Blue Ridge? Uh, sure. This is a play by Abby Rosebrock, and it is uh, at Atlantic theater company down on 20th street. And uh, one of the main reasons I wanted to go was that the central role I would say is played by Marin Ireland, who I really love. I think she's one of our finest actresses. Is it Marin or Marin? I Uh, don't know. uh, In this case, I actually know because I Mm -hmm. asked her. Great. Yeah. (laughs) What does she know? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You're saying it wrong, (laughs) but uh, yeah. Um, but I, I've heard a lot of people say Marin, which is understandable, uh, as in Maisie. Uh, anyway, Marin Ireland uh, plays this woman who is in a halfway house uh, because she <laughs> – uh, what happened was uh, she was a, a teacher and she wound up having an affair with her principal. And apparently it didn't 
go well. And so she took an axe to his car. Uh, and so that <laughs> that uh, is why she, uh, you know, has been removed and is in this halfway house. And so it's about uh, her and her reactions, uh, her interactions with the other people in the, the halfway house, all, all of whom obviously have one sort of issue or another. Uh, the other uh, people are played by Nicole Lewis. Crystal uh, and Lloyd, Kyle Beltran, Chris Stack, and Peter Mark Kendall, uh, and the, it's a, it's a religious uh, associated halfway house in Western North Carolina. So uh, that's that's the milieu that we're in, uh, and it's it's about their uh, their interactions with each other. This is one of those really interesting cases where I would say the character played by Marin Ireland, uh, Allison, is very uh, overall very unlikable. Uh, I mean, aside from I, I told you what she did to uh, to her to the car of that poor fellow. Uh, but she uh, she is very um, prickly and she uh, seems very much on edge all the time and and it's it's quite a challenge for an actor to play uh, a character like that and and retain the audience's sympathy but she she is a great actress and she does so so i i uh, i was um impressed anew with her abilities as far as that and i think um the play itself it has a lot of really good dialogue in it and uh, a lot of uh, very uh, scenes that sound very real involving these these various characters having conversations with each other about their various issues so i think that is the strength of it i think construction wise it was uh, um a little bit of a mess uh in in some ways i it didn't seem um to really cohere very well it seemed rather disjointed to me uh but uh and maybe it was a little longer than it needed to be, but not much. Uh, I I think that the uh, playwright, um, according to her bio, she doesn't have a whole lot of experience uh, yet. So I think that uh, this this shows, um, you know, I mean, I think it's uh, it's a plus uh, that uh, th- this shows that she does have a lot of talent and she just needs to hone it a little more. Uh, but in the meantime, it was a good vehicle for the uh, acting of all of these excellent actors and uh, directed by, by the way, by Tybee Magar. Uh, but that I'm probably not pronouncing right. T-A-I-B-I-M-A-G-A-R um, at the Atlantic Theater Company. Taibi, maybe? Perhaps. Yeah, Taibi. Yeah. I don't know. Like that uh, newscaster. Yeah, Matt Taibi. Yeah. Yeah, from Channel 4. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, Jan, what did you think of Blue Ridge? The Atlantic Theater Company, like uh, many of the off major off Broadway companies, um, has several theaters, and some are smaller, sort of black box operations where they can experiment more, put on new playwrights, people who aren't quite ready for for the big time the big stage and i think this is where that play should have been uh 
this uh, was at um, their Linda Gross Theater, which is Atlantic Theater's major venue. And this play didn't seem ready for that kind of prime time to me. Um, like uh, Michael, I am a big, now that I know how to pronounce her name, Marin Ireland fan. And um, I thought even she couldn't save this play. Mm. Um, I actually left it a little angry because I will go see her in anything. I, I just will. And I left a little angry because I thought this made her look not good. I don't mean the character. Uh, it's fine to have unlikable characters. I just thought this was an illogical character. Mm. She was bouncing all over the place. Um, we couldn't quite understand her motivations. There seemed to be a little bit of Blanche from Streetcar weaving its way in. <laughs> um, the place, the, the, the setting uh, was a little... Uh, unrealistic as well. Uh, it's a halfway house. The people in the halfway house all had different kinds of issues. I've never been in a halfway house, so maybe this is the way it is. But there are people who had alcohol problems. There were people who had severe mental issues. There's this woman who has anger issues. Um, and they're all in the same group. And although we're led to believe this is a real going concern. There are only four patients. Um, so that, <laughs> seemed, that seemed a, 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 a little uh, strange. Um, the ending tries to be much more uh, meaningful to wrap everything up. And instead, it's kind of like, why did you tap? that on at the end this uh, I agree with Michael that uh, this playwright Abby Rosebrock uh, has a nice way with dialogue but I find that a lot of the young playwrights are very good at dialogue um, and that's not enough and, mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe it's a maturation process but in this, for this particular play, it it was a disappointment. It didn't work, even though it had some very, again, agreeing with Michael, some very good performances. Um, she was very lucky in the sense that she had such strong actors. Um, people may uh, remember Crystalline Lloyd. She was in the original uh, production of Dear Evan Hansen. She played his sort of busybody uh, uh, friend. Mm -hmm. uh, Kyle Beltran has been in uh, a number of, uh, of shows. Uh, mainly, uh, I've seen him down at the public. Very uh, strong actors giving very strong performances, but a lot of it came from them as opposed to from uh, what they were given to work with. So, as I said before we started taping, I'm sort of like the the I, negative naysayer today, but this one didn't work for me either. I don't disagree with any of that. I think you've you've got it all right. I was just trying to approach yeah, nice the, 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 the positive more than the negative but there are some really there there's um uh for example uh, several people have commented there's a really 
weird plot point in this play. We're supposed to believe, as I said, uh, this, the situation, the reason that Marin's character is in the halfway house is because she uh, – her, her – romance with her principal uh, went bad and she took an axe to his car. Now, first of all, she shouldn't have been having a romance with her principal. <laughs> and second of all, she shouldn't have taken an axe to his car. But anyway, so then she goes to the halfway house and she's there dealing with her issues. And then believe it or not, at the end of the play, we are told that she's going back to teach at the same school with the same principal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like, Gosh, couldn't you have rewritten that a little bit? <laughs> couldn't it have been another school, you know, maybe at least? <laughs> um, so it's funny that I, I wonder if um, if these young playwrights have any pushback from any dramaturgs or any artistic directors saying, um, hey, you know, this one part here. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Maybe they don't. Uh, and, and I don't think that's a good thing. So. All right. So that is uh, Blue Ridge Atlantic Theatre Company, and it's playing through January 27, 2019. Uh, next up, Jenna, you saw uh, an off-Broadway production of George slash Martha, which uh, yeah. might have a... Uh, uh, for listeners out there who are... Um, <laughs> might guess at what the, what the show is based upon. So tell, tell us more about this. Uh, I went east on Midtown to see, to the uh, People's Improv Theater. A friend of mine has been doing an ongoing improv show called George Slash Martha, with, you know, sort of evoking a uh, one of those sports things. I'm not really sure what games I think they're called, like with, with teams, and you have a slash between the names of the two teams. Uh, I, I don't really follow sports, so I'm not really sure. Um, any case, the show is called George Martha, and it is an improv take on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And the audience becomes Nick, Honey, and everyone else who is attending George and Martha's after party. And uh, Jason Speckland, who plays Richard Burton, who's playing George, and Adrian Sexton plays Elizabeth Taylor, who's playing Martha. Uh, talk with the audience, pick up on different cues and run with it as they're sniping at each other. And what really impressed me is as they're improvising and picking up lines from the audience, they're referencing a lot of moments straight out of Albie's play and the classic movie as well. And I was really amazed at how they balanced the new moments from the improvisation with the established lines. I couldn't swear up and down that uh, they're directly quoting from the script, which I think for uh, copyright purposes is uh, is important. But they do a really nice job of referencing the original, keeping the characters consistent while being very funny and having a lot of fun with the audience. Um, and, And it was just a... I went in just to support a friend and wound up really enjoying uh, the overall production. It's an, it only runs an hour. It's $10. Uh, you can do a lot worse for an evening out and cheering on uh, an, ed- an interactive improv- improvised uh, Edward Albee play. Uh, it's, I think the next run is February 1st at Pitt. And, uh, you know, if you don't like improv, if you don't like audience participation, if, you know, Tony and Tina's wedding made you recoil in horror, it isn't that, uh, it isn't that interactive. 
But <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it's not quite to that level of interaction, but you know, it is an improv show. And so they are picking up on, you know, they're asking the audience questions and then picking up on lines. But just seeing how deftly they would incorporate comments from the audience into the more famous beats from Albie's script was a lot of fun. Uh, I utterly enjoyed myself. The people around me did as well, or at least they seemed to. So I would really recommend it if you're an Albie fan uh, and if you just want a fun way to spend an hour in Midtown. Utterly enjoyable. So uh, PIT is an acronym for the People's Improv Theater, in case you were a little bit confused there. They... Oh, sorry. Did I not specify? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I specified No, that. no, no. That's okay. I wouldn't have known except for I was just looking at their website there, and they refer to themselves as the PIT. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure that that was that was clear that we were talking about the same thing. Yes. And uh, it seems, though, that they uh, these two actors have done this for a number of years. They've been doing it for a while, yeah. And I've always been busy when they've had it before, so this was my first chance to finally go see it. Excellent. All right, next up. Michael, you got to see uh, Maestro, uh, which is a new play with music by Romantic Century uh, at the Duke on 42nd Street. So tell us about this. I have seen several of their shows, and I would say this is the best one yet, Uh, although partly it might be partly because I have more, uh, I guess, more interest and knowledge of the subject of this show than the the previous ones that I saw. This is a a show about Arturo Toscanini. And uh, in the style of the other other shows that the Ensemble for the Romantic Century has presented, they're um, kind of freeform shows. They're not narratives. Uh, There is not dialogue in the traditional sense. What they uh, tend to consist of is... uh, Excerpts from letters, um, usually, uh, most often letters, sometimes newspaper articles, other writings about or of the person who is being uh, p- portrayed. And um, in this case, uh, they there was a very serious dramatic underpinning throughout the whole show because aside from – Toscanini's brilliance as a musician, as a conductor, he was uh, famous as a staunch, staunch anti-fascist and anti-Nazi at the at the height of of all of that horribleness, uh, you know, in uh, in d- leading up to and during World War II, and even and even before that, uh, he was he was uh, really very much against Mussolini, etc. So he so that is something that uh, that there was a real dramatic hook for this play. And they they uh, and the best parts of it were when um, uh, Toscanini played by John Noble was reading uh, these letters to to his wife or or his uh, his uh, other uh, other colleagues and just making his his statements about his his efforts in terms of um, fighting the fascists and the Nazis. He also, I mean, he became involved in helping to rescue people from the Holocaust. You know, uh, he was really, he was, even if he couldn't conduct at all, uh, even if he had no talent as a musician, he would have been a great 
person in terms of his efforts, uh, his his humanitarian efforts, and 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 uh, fighting these these horrible uh, fascist uh, regimes. Um, so, but of course, the fact that he was a world famous musician just just gave him more power. Uh, to help in those regards, and he really, he certainly did. So this was a, a, a wonderful show. The the um, the ensemble for the Romantic Century they always have very beautiful, interesting uh, projections, and then they always have music being played live uh, by uh, you know usually by smaller groups, uh, and and sometimes they have singers. Oddly enough, this one did not have a singer, which that I, I will say I was disappointed because Toscanini, aside from his work with, you know, with cl- classical uh, non operatic music, he also was the most famous opera conductor of his time and has many, many um, uh, great opera recordings. So I was sorry that there wasn't any singing, but uh, we had a lot of, uh, Excerpts from uh, Italian you know, uh, Italian music that was famous at the t- uh, around that time that he uh, that he was well th- that he was living, but he lived to do a very very uh, old age, and he was still extremely active during the World War Two period. And um, in this case, uh, yeah, the the music was played really really beautifully by a, a small group, uh, and then there were also. Um, I don't, haven't seen this before in, in previous ensemble for the Romantic Century shows, but this one did have several excerpts of Toscanini recordings. So in in those excerpts, we got some singing from Aida, uh, and uh, I think yeah, I guess all of the uh, all of the excerpts were from his very famous recording of Aida. But it was uh, I'm I'm glad I went. I, I, as I say, to, to me it was the most successful one they've done so far. They had done previous shows about uh, Van Gogh. Uh, one was about Van Gogh. One was about Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, and they were both good. But this to me was the most effective one. I thought it it stumbled a little bit when it got more into Toscanini's private life because that just seemed to me far less interesting than his uh, than his political efforts uh, and his artistic efforts. Uh, but I still I really enjoyed it and I would recommend it. All right, so that is uh, playing through February ninth. And we'll mm-hmm. have a link to that in the show notes as well. At the Duke on 42nd Street. At the Duke on 42nd Street. Jan, mm-hmm. you uh, went all the way to another borough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you crossed a great river. Got you, my you passport? passport? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Got my passport. Oh, you a drink. Mm, yeah. And so down to St. Anne's Warehouse where uh, – where they made way for uh, the jungle by closing sexy Oklahoma to play this. Was this a, uh, of course, I'm joking there, Oklahoma is coming to Broadway, uh, sexy Oklahoma. And so um, the jungle down at St. Anne's Warehouse, you got a chance to see that. Tell us about the jungle. The jungle is a really unusual piece. It's an environmental work. It recreates this refugee camp that existed in Calais in France, uh, where numbers of people created a tent city, hundreds, maybe thousands of people created a tent city as they waited 
to try and make it into other uh, uh, Northern European countries, um, many of them wanting to go uh, primarily to 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 England. Um, this uh, camp was destroyed by uh, the French government, and the play opens with the destruction of the camp. So I'm not giving uh, anything away. And then we go back and we look at the creation of the camp, uh, Saint. Uh, St. Anne's uh, is a very flexible space, and so they've recreated uh, this restaurant, which was a central meeting place uh, at the camp that was run by an Afghan man. And you come in, when you get your tickets, your ticket assigns you to a particular country because the people who used that restaurant and who met there would sit according to the countries that they had come from. So you might be Syria or Sudan or Afghanistan or Somalia, um, and you you sit at these benches because th that's the way the restaurant was set up, and the action swirls around you. There is a major runway that uh, goes in the middle of the benches, of the seating, where most of the action takes place. But it's swirling all around you. And the thing that was most impressive to me is that the actors never stopped acting. Even when people were in a corner, far away from where most of us were looking or where the main action was going on, if you looked over in the corner, they were performing, they were, they were acting, they were quite in it. This piece was written by two uh, young Brits who had gone to the camp when it when it was in existence to volunteer and they ended up setting up a theater in the camp um, as a place for people to um, go be entertained uh, express themselves and some of the actors from that original theater were in this performance um, it became uh very difficult to get some of the actors into the country because of Trump's um, uh, immigration ban. And a coalition of people um, led by uh, Sting and Benedict Cumberbatch, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, all of them uh, organized this campaign to, to get those actors here. These actors are uh, terrific. It's a really, um, it's an experience. It is only running one more week uh, out in Brooklyn at St. Anne's, but it is going to uh, the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area in March. And so listeners who are out there, I really urge you uh, to go and and see this. It's like actually no other performance I've 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 ever uh, seen before. It's a real visceral experience as you're listening to these people's stories, experiencing their 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 hope, their desperation, and their sorrow when 
this place that has become a temporary home, but a home nonetheless, is taken from them. It's it's really quite something. Wow. So that's uh, the jungle. It's Hanan's Warehouse down in Brooklyn. Uh, oh, I should also add, yeah. it's directed by Stephen Daldry. Oh. Um, uh-huh. uh, of uh, Billy Elliot fame, yeah. I believe, mm-hmm. um, and and so it's it's not just a sort of a you know advanced community theater thing. Although <laughs> I'm not knocking community theater, seeing some <laughs> great community theater, but it's 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 not just you know a bunch of amateurs coming together. There are professional actors in it but there are also uh, people who were introduced to acting in the camp, and it's all molded uh, together by this world-famous director, um, Stephen Daldry. Yeah, that's fun. You know, my first job, I worked with Stephen Daldry. I had never acted before, so... (laughs) 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 It's really, you look back 20 years later, you're like, oh my goodness. (laughs) How did that happen? That's awesome. (laughs) All right. So uh, we'll have a link to The Jungle in the show notes. And uh, maybe we'll see if we can find somebody out on the West Coast uh, to give us a check-in on that when that happens out there. It's it's interesting to me to see – I'm assuming they're not going to take a lot of the same cast. They may take some of the same cast. No, I think they're taking everybody. They actually brought over the tent that they used for their theater um, in Calais. When the camp was destroyed, they they took the the tent with them and they put the tent up in St. Anne's. So when you're walking into the theater, you're walking through the the tent. I think they're taking everybody and the tent. Wow. Everything's going, so I think they're going to see the exact same production we saw here. You think they'll put them in a Partridge Family bus and sing across the country? <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah, we throw a, a GoPro in that in that bus and stream that. All right, um, Jan, uh, not Jan, Jenna. The problems with the Jays again, uh, Jenna. You got a chance to catch up with the Share Show because uh, originally, when you went to see it, your uh, tickets got rescheduled for a uh, a casting reason. Yes. So uh, it's a good opportunity to find out how the Share Show was holding up uh, and tell us what you thought about it. Well, uh, a month and change after opening, and yes, my uh, my tickets got rescheduled due to uh, an illness in the cast. Uh, but everything seems much better now. Uh, a month and change in, uh, I thought the show was holding up quite nicely. Um, uh, bio musicals, I'll, I'll be the first to say, are not usually my thing. Uh, but I will own up to owning, uh, or I will try that again, I will own up to uh, enjoying quite a few moments from uh, summer last season. Uh, there are it had some moments that really worked and the share show takes everything that worked in summer and takes it further. And it avoids a lot of the traps that I thought weakened summer, uh, like summer, this, uh, as we've said on the, uh, the December 9th episode of this week on Broadway, uh, there are three actresses that play share at various moments in her life. Uh, Michaela diamond plays her as the neophyte babe. Uh, she is, just wonderful. She gets some really Fosse-esque dance moments uh, in the show. Uh, really 
uh, impressive rising star, I thought. Teal Wicks plays her as slightly older lady. lady. And uh, Michael, I disagreed with you here. I really liked her take on the role. Um, I thought she had a terrific take, uh, a terrific sense of humor and delivery. And I thought she really captured the essence of Cher in her variety show days. Uh, Stephanie J. Block, I mean, I, I must agree with absolutely everyone who has raved about her. Uh, she just keeps proving why she is one of Broadway's top leading ladies. Uh, like everyone's commented, her characterization of Cher is on point. She sings beautifully. And what really impressed me was how she makes this iconic persona that we all know, we all recognize. She makes that persona into a character, a real character with depth. Uh, that's uh, no small accomplishment to take a personality that we're all so familiar with and give it dimension. Um, all three are on the same page in terms of humor and pacing, but one thing they just they, one thing that really impressed me is how they found distinctive takes on these classic songs while impersonating the woman who made them famous. Uh, it's a really delicate balance to do that, to make the song sound fresh and new, but somehow make them sound like they were when they were first premiered. Uh, that They handled that quite well. Uh, Jared Spector doesn't get nearly as much to do as Sonny Bono, but his impression is just on point. He gets a lot of funny lines, and he handles them beautifully. Emily Skinner, the great Emily Skinner, gets some beautiful moments as Cher's mother, and a quick bit as Lucille Ball, uh, which I thought was fun. Uh, I, I know back in December uh, that was complained about a bit, but I enjoyed the moment. I thought it was really cute. Michael Barres, uh Wonderful as Bob Mackey. Love him. Uh, he's very charming, very funny. He gets to dance. It's always wonderful to see Michael Barres dance. And even cooler, uh, Bob Mackey designed this production's costumes. And I'm wondering, is this the first time in a show where the production's costume designer is also a character? <laughs> uh, not counting Coco, which I think had a few moments with uh, Coco Chanel dresses, but Coco Chanel herself didn't obviously design the costumes for the show. Does anyone know if this is a first? It's always risky to say first, but I I, <laughs> wouldn't, be, first. I wouldn't be surprised if if it is. Uh, I don't know who other what other. Uh, let's see, Cecil Beaton has he ever was he ever? <laughs> I I don't think so. Johnny Versace. There we go. Oh God, yeah. Uh, I do agree with Michael that uh, Rick Ellis's script, it, it's not a breathtaking work of staggering brilliance, but it doesn't <laughs> need to be. I mean, it, it is exactly what it is. And it moves the story along. It's funny. It captures that sense of humor that uh, Cher has uh, Cher has handled for what? The better part of 50 years. Uh, so it does, it does a perfectly good job with that. But one thing I thought it really did well was in the depiction of the breakdown of Sonny and Cher's relationship. Uh, significantly, it doesn't depict an abusive relationship as violent. Mm. Uh, from the beginning, we figure out, we, we see all of the challenges that Cher is up against. She's insecure. She needs a father figure. Uh, she's very, very young when she gets involved with Sonny for the first time. Today, we would recognize it as child abuse. Uh, she's dyslexic, which she doesn't know at the time. She wasn't diagnosed until much later in life. So reading is very difficult for her. I mean, she needs all of the support. And then we just watch how Sonny takes advantage of each of those problems and uh, and 
controls her with them. Uh, in some ways, it's almost more disturbing than the traditional Lifetime movie of the week uh, abuse story, where the violence and abuse is very clear, because this is so subtle. It's a lot more subtle, and it just got under my skin in a lot of ways that this is what I've seen in a lot of unhealthy relationships with everything just coming down to control, not necessarily mm. violence. Right. But I, I, there are some people I was really thinking, oh, you need to see this. You need come see this relationship and see how it fell apart. And it was kind of disturbing. But I thought uh, Ellis's script really handled that beautifully. Um, I think what made the show effective is that it doesn't take itself seriously. It's what I like about Ellis's script. Uh, Jason Moore's direction, it makes sure that even the more poignant moments are relatively lighthearted. It's a fun celebration of a celebrity who's never been afraid to reinvent herself or risk looking silly. So the show can be silly and irreverent, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, I want to cheer on uh, Daryl Waters and Zane Mark's orchestrations of Cher's songs. They keep a, a classic pop sound, but they make it work for a Broadway uh, Broadway house. Uh, Brett Benakis' set, Kevin Adams' lighting, they evoke big stadium concerts, and then they can become smaller for the more intimate moments. It works for both uh both kinds of scenes. Uh, and one thing I, I disagree with Peter from his uh, December criticism, he, uh, I appreciated that uh, Ellis's book, it, um, Cher's firstborn son is never referred to by his dead name or his former gender. Uh, pronouns are just avoided whenever he's referred to as a child. He's only ever called Chaz in the script. And uh, I, I disagreed with Peter that the show should explore Chaz and Cher's relationship more. The show is mostly focused on Cher's professional life and her relationship with Sonny. So none of the kids appear on stage except as infants and in, uh, when they're first introduced. Uh, I really think this is a good way you know for a story that has a trans uh, transgender character uh, in the periphery of the storyline it's a beautiful way to just incorporate the character and not bring in dead names dead genders uh, anything like that i thought the script handled that uh, very very well okay so that is the share show holding up pretty well over the neil simon um you had mentioned in the beginning of your description of the show that uh, bio-musicals are not your thing, but they really. seem like they're here to stay. I don't know uh -huh. if you guys have uh, heard that the Michael Jackson bio-musical Don't Stop You Get Enough is uh, scaling up for a Broadway run. I think we're going to hear an announcement about that this week coming up. Yeah, although if some of them don't start doing well again, maybe, maybe uh, you know... Yeah. Maybe we'll, it'll turn back again because uh, everything is like it turn back time. Summer, yeah. summer, <laughs> summer is already gone. Is that true? Yes. Mm -hmm. Summer is already I, gone. I, I think I, Cher is doing well. And I think Ain't Too Proud is going to do well, too. Well, yes, I, I, that, that, that's going to really tell the tale, I think, uh, in one way or another. Hmm. So, I mean, uh, I wish them all well, but uh, oh, it's, yeah. it's a matter of personal taste. Uh, audience at Cher's show was cheering. They really seemed very happy to be there. And it looked like, from what I could see, a full house. So uh, it's just my personal taste, but I absolutely wish them well. Uh, so next up, Michael, you got over to Town Hall for a one-night-only um, concert as part of the Broadway at Town Hall series, this uh, young singer named Kelly O'Hara. 
or something was uh, Seth Rudesky can find them. He finds them, pulls them out of oblivion, and presents yeah. them, and they're amazing. So uh, she's tell going us, places. Yeah, how did this one go? Oh, it went really, really well. Uh, Seth, I'm sure, is known to many of our listeners. Through many venues, he is uh, uh, he is on Sirius Radio, and he um, had been doing for years a series at Don't Tell Mama, the cabaret uh, on Restaurant Row, called Seth's Chatterbox. Uh, and he would get fabulous, fabulous Broadway people to sit down with him and, and talk informally and perform a little bit. I miss uh, that. Uh, and I, yeah, I... I I went to so many of those and they were so great because yeah. it's just uh, when, you know, when performers are, when they're allowed to let down their hair and just talk with someone who's knowledgeable and, and say whatever they want. And, uh, and we, we get to really know the person as, as opposed to the performer um, and they can share as much as they want or as little as they want, but th- they, they always tend to have great stories, funny stories, point stories, um, uh, and plus, then getting to hear them sing in an intimate setting, you know, it's it's, it's just a, a really great idea. So Seth did that for years at Don't Tell Mama. Then um, he uh, – I know he uh, hooked up with this fellow produ- pro- uh, a producer named Mark Cortale, and they were doing similar – uh, presentations in, I think it started in Provincetown. I saw a few of them up there. Uh, and then I think they started to do them in other cities. And now um, it's it's being established as a series, uh, yet another Broadway-related series at the Town Hall, which is one of the great halls in New York City on 43rd Street. Um, they have already done one uh, with Audra McDonald, uh, Seth and Audra McDonald, uh, did a sit down uh, recently, and now uh, just uh, the one with Kelly O'Hara was on Monday the fourteenth. And coming up is uh, mark your calendars on Monday, March eleventh, is uh, Seth with Jeremy Jordan. So uh, he picks really good people, and uh, he just I think when he started to do these, uh, there was some criticism of Seth that maybe he was. Uh, uh, injecting a little too much of himself into it. Uh, but I, I think, uh, uh, I, I, I never really had a big problem with that. Uh, uh, and I think whatever, to whatever extent that was true, it's less so now he's really got it down to his science where he just asks interesting questions and, and, and gives it over to the performer and, 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 uh, uh gives them a lot of freedom as to, uh, you know, what they want to talk about and leads them into really interesting, funny stories. Um, and Kelly was just great. Uh, you, you know, you don't, um, most of us don't get to know these people on a personality level. We, we only respond to their great talents on stage, but, uh, and so you never know if, uh, how someone is going to be in a situation like this. Are, are they going to, uh, seem really natural and, and relaxed and funny and, and engaging, or, or are they going to maybe be a little stiff? Uh, I, I don't imagine someone who is going to be stiff would probably agree to do it in the first place. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, so you can probably uh, guess that you're going to have a, a good time as far as that. And it was wonderful. The stories were great. Uh, Carrie, Kelly talked about her family and her husband, and she talked about many of her theatrical highlights and she sang, um, a very generous amount of 
of material. I think it, that can vary uh, from performer to performer when they are with Seth. But she did quite a lot, including a beautiful song from Bridges of Madison County and uh, a beautiful song from The Light in the Piazza, which even even if it had been the only two things she sang, I, I would have considered uh, myself happy because th- those were two of the greatest things she ever did. And, you know, it, it gets to the point where who knows – um, when or if I'll ever get to hear her sing that material again. Um, so so it was just great. Uh, another plus of these kinds of shows is that they tend to be far less expensive in terms of tickets, uh, ticket prices than a Broadway show. So it's uh, it's just a win-win-win for everybody. Mm. You get to you get to see these great performers, uh, you know, sitting down and talking and performing and. Uh, you get to now go to this this wonderful uh, town hall, which is, as I said before, one of the greatest, uh, most historic halls in New York. And you, you get to do it for a fraction of what you would pay to see a Broadway show. Um, so I absolutely uh, would say put this series on your radar. Uh, but not only that um, – Town Hall is also continuing its well-known, beloved Broadway by the Year series, um, created, written, directed, and hosted by Scott Siegel, our friend Scott Siegel. And they have a bunch of stuff coming up. Uh, They're starting on um, Monday, February 25th uh, uh, is the first program. And then they have uh, three more scheduled after that uh, through next June. I'm sorry, four more scheduled through next July, <laughs> uh, where uh, next July is Broadway Rising Stars. Um, uh, that's another program that Scott does where he showcases young talent. So it's uh, it's um, what year are they doing in February? Uh, they are doing uh, they have gotten to the point where uh, they're not devoting uh, an entire program to one year. Uh, so on, on February uh, 25th, Act 1 is going to be songs from shows that opened in 1928, mm-hmm. and Act 2 will be shows that opened in 1935. Hmm. Uh, so you can think of, you know, if you can, you can run through your... Uh, <laughs> do your... Uh, a little uh, Gershwin, a little Porter. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can probably think of who you, who's yeah. going to hear. Yeah. All right. So that is uh, things happening at the town hall for a hundred, Alex. <laughs> and, <laughs> all right. Uh, let me ask you a question. When's the last time town hall had legitimate show in it? Ooh. Oh well, I don't think they ever did. It was. They it was. Never? Huh. No, I don't think so. It was primarily used for uh, lectures and concerts. Hmm. Uh, primarily lectures, and then I think uh, concerts uh, were, I think, maybe almost an afterthought. But there have been some very, very, very famous performers there. I have a, a recording of uh, Leontine Price doing a concert there in like 1960 or 59 or something like that, and that's famous. And uh, uh, Marian Anderson performed there, and um, just some really wonderful people. Wow. All right, Jan, you caught up with uh, Brian Cranston and Network this week. Uh, tell us what your thoughts on Network were. Yikes. Um, <laughs> uh, That's like a John Simon one-word review. You know? <laughs> and thank you. We're done. 
<laughs> uh, everybody knows this is uh, Eva, the Belgian director, or Eva von Hova's take on uh, the great Paddy Chayefsky, um, uh, Sidney Lumet film from 1976. Um, it, the playbill says adapted by Lee Hall, but as far as I could tell, um, I could have adapted this because uh, it. Uh, I, I actually last night rewatched the movie for the first time, maybe since 1976, and uh, except for one subplot. Um, it's the lines are 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 all the same. Verbatim. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's the there's the show. What uh, Van Hova has done is to impose a concept, which is what Van Hova does, and this concept involves um, a lot of big screens all over the place. Uh, vid- people doing video you see camera people on stage video taping of the actors as they're moving uh, uh, around the actors uh, are impressive because we uh, have brian cranston uh, in the major role of howard beale a longtime news anchor person who has a meltdown and uh, this meltdown is taken advantage of by some uh, television execs who feel that uh, this version of reality TV, we're talking 1976, folks, that this version of reality TV will appeal to audiences. Um, as many people know, Patty Chayefsky, uh, the uh, author of the great film Marty was a major writer during the golden period of the golden age of television in the 1950s. By the 1960s and certainly by the time of network, he had soured on television and thought that um, it was turning into something that could lead to bad things. And actually, that's what it says in the play. This is going to lead to bad things. Um, also, in the production, in this production, are Tony Goldwyn and uh, Tatiana Maslany, uh, who also have followings, in addition to Cranston's, uh, Goldwyn's from um, Scandal, the television show, and Maslany from Orphan Black, another uh cult favorite um, on television. Uh, There are also some theater stalwarts here. Um, Frank Wood, um, Ron Canada, um, someone I'm always happy to see, although he doesn't have a name, Henry Stram. Um, No one makes it except for Cranston. Everyone else and the story get lost in all the hijinks of that that Van Hova has going on. On one side of the stage, there is a literal little restaurant where some audience members are served dinner 
while they are on stage watching the show, when the show moves from locale to locale to someone's home, for example, or to a bar somewhere, we don't really get a sense that it's moved because we're trapped in this gigantic studio that Van Hova and his um, longtime and regular uh, uh, collaborator, set designer, uh, Jan Versveveld, uh, who is also his life partner, the two of them work on these concepts together, um, that they've created. And the story just gets lost. And watching the movie last night, the emotional... Uh, beats of that um, are just totally, totally lost in in this production. Again, however, Cranston finds a way to cut his way through. This is a testament to a really, really fine actor who, in the midst of all of this craziness that's going on, is still able to cut through and give you uh, some heart. Um, The production, for me, didn't work. And I am uh, a Von Hova fan. Uh, I liked him when he was off-Broadway, or at least I found him interesting. I don't know if like is the word for Van Hova. Um, I found him interesting when he was off Broadway. I was knocked out. I did like, I did love his uh, uh, production of A View from the Bridge. Uh, Less so his uh, production of The Crucible a few years ago. But this one makes me really, really worried about what he's going to do with West Side Story. Um, at first I thought this could be interesting. Now I'm like really nervous. Um, but, uh, you know, if you got a few extra dollars, you got some time, you might want to go see this just for Cranston. And then I have one tiny little Cranston story, um, that's ancillary to this because, um, after the show, my husband and I went next door to Café de Trois to have a uh, dinner and, they sat us at the window so we could see uh, people waiting at the stage door. And it was a cold night when we saw it and people were waiting. They really wanted to see Cranston and he didn't come out for a while. You saw the, the big cars lined up there to take the stars home. And when he came out, he has a real portraying Howard Beale because we see him break down on stage. We see him have this meltdown. So every night, this actor has to recreate uh, this meltdown. Um, and so after this emotionally and physically exhausting performance, he came out and he really gave the people who were waiting there his full attention. He took selfies. He chatted Mm -hmm. with people. He made sure that he went to the back of the crowd so that the people who were just up front were not the only ones who got a chance to interact with him. His publicist or whoever it was had to drag him away. And it didn't seem as as though he were doing it because, you know, aren't I great? I'm the star, that kind of thing. It was, he was just being a genuine person. Um, 
such a testament to him. And as I said, there were other stars. I'm not going to name who it was. <laughs> One of the other stars came out the crowd after Cranston had left. The the crowd perked up again because you know people were beginning to leave, and then this other person comes out and they perk up, and that person went right into their car and left. And I thought, really? If Cranston can work the line, <laughs> you can work the line. Um, just all props for his acting, for his personhood to Brian Cranston. So, Jenna, um, Brian Cranston, uh, you saw Brian yesterday, didn't you? Oh, I did. I got to hang out with Brian yesterday, and we're, we're super tight now. Okay, besties. <laughs> we're, oh, yeah, we're absolute besties. Me and uh, I would estimate a couple thousand other people that were standing on that street. But, uh, yeah, I was at the uh, the Women's March yesterday, and uh, they at the end of the route, they directed us onto 44th Street, and I stopped uh, right across from the, uh, the Belasco, where there was a drumming group, and oh my God, I'm blanking on the name of the drumming group. Ah, they were wonderful. Mm. Oh, please forgive me. Uh, I'm just totally. I need more coffee. I, I will try to find them and see if I can get them into the uh, the show notes uh, so they get due respect. They were just terrific, uh, and everyone stands around to listen to the drumming, and the drumming stops, and everyone cheered, and then everyone begins screaming, and we turn around, and on the balcony of the Belasco, there's Brian Cranston waving to the crowd and cheering, and <laughs> everyone is screaming. He pulls out Great his time. phone. Yes, he pulls out his phone. He does a whole panorama video, <laughs> and then turns around facing backwards so he can get a selfie with the crowd behind him. Uh, if you go on his Instagram feed, I actually checked. If you go on Brian Cranston's Instagram feed, you can see it. He recorded it and posted this. So there is his video of the crowd uh, right outside the theater. And it was it was such it was fun. It was uh, him being a mensch and cheering on the group. He had, you know, he would not have lost anything by staying inside mm. on a cold day, mm. but he crawled out onto a balcony, not even like a proper balcony. Yeah, it looked very dangerous. It looked like it, he was yes. going to. He looked like he was ready to jump. Like the, uh, I'm the, mad uh, as hell, and I'm not going to uh, take it anymore. Yeah, exactly. I should have yelled that. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> Annoyed. Yeah, he. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was just in. The Jewish mother in me got very, oh, no, Bubby, stay inside. Don't get out here. <laughs> now you're going to trip. Go back inside. But it was lovely. Uh, and, and again, he uh, a true mensch. And that's lovely to hear that he was uh, shaking hands with the crowd and, uh, and posing for selfies. That's really lovely to hear. I, I don't expect that of actors. They've got to look out for their safety, their health. Um, I Back in the day, I used to stage door all the time. And it was always a thrill when they would shake my hand and sign my playbill. This was long before selfies were a thing. You know, cameras back in those days, you had to stand for 20 minutes for the exposure. So, um, but, yeah, I, w I want to agree with you. And I, and I want to add that actors don't owe people that sort of interaction after the performance. We pay our ticket. They give us a per performance and that that is you know the exchange yes. when they when they uh come out and do something it's a gift exactly it's, it's it's a gift to the people who are there it's an act of true generosity yes. and um and so that's what i was looking at i was looking mm -hmm. at the fact that here's so, someone who has 
you know, just been emotionally exhausted and then can come out and find uh, just the, the, the generosity within himself to do that. Exactly. you know, just yeah, and 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 then to hear that, you know, there he is on the balcony, you know, waving at you guys. I mean, it's just a great guy. It is, and and yes, I agree. I don't think it's something actors owe their fans, but it's very very nice when they are able to and want to, and it, it's it's lovely. So yes, I I completely agree with everything you said. It's a gift, and it's nice. Okay. Uh, talking about actors and uh, meeting with people off stage, Michael, you uh, got a chance to moderate and interview Santina Fontana uh, over at a Drama Desk event at Ripley Greer this week. So tell us about that. Yes, yes, it, w- it went really well. I was uh, very much looking forward to speaking with him. Santino has already done so much in his young career and very, very successfully um, several Broadway shows and other projects. And he has uh, two things coming up, uh, which is why we set up this this interview and Q&A. He uh, is... Uh, he created, uh, conceived co- and co-created and is one of the cast members of a show uh, that's coming up in the Lyrics and Lyricists series at the 92nd Street Y called We'll Have Manhattan, Rogers and Hart in New York. And that is uh, coming up on January 26th and uh, through 28th. Uh, and he is in it along with his wife, Jessica, and such other folks as Anne Harada and uh, – Lily Cooper, who is uh, one of Santino's co-stars in his other big upcoming event, which is the musical version of Tootsie uh, that's coming to Broadway from Chicago, uh, where where it had its tryout with a score by David Yazbek, certainly one of my favorites. And I just cannot wait to see that show. I think it sounds like Santino is perfect casting in it, and I have very, very high hopes for it. Um, So, yes, I hosted this event at Ripley Greer Studios, and it was primarily for Drama Desk members. We were able to have a few non-members in uh, uh, also, and he. we went through his career, and he, uh, he is especially <laughs> charming and very smart and extremely funny, so it just was a wonderful session, um, uh, an hour of interview followed by a half hour of Q&A. Uh, and I wanted to uh, mention one thing in particular because it uh, this uh, event gave us one of those amazing, incredibly small world of show business stories. Uh, because what uh, happened was we talked about the fact that um, when he was a teenager, uh, Santino went and studied at the uh, Interlochen Arts Camp. Uh, and he was, while he was there, one of the things he did was that he played riff uh, opposite the Tony of Michael Arden in a production of West Side Story at Interlochen. Uh, so that was just something he mentioned in passing. Uh, then we also talked about the fact that at, at age 23, Santino played Hamlet at the Guthrie. Uh, not at some tiny little community theater, but at the Guthrie um, in Minneapolis. And 
uh, he, he talked about that and what a you know what an enriching and wonderful experience that was. And he also mentioned that it was kind of neat that the previous person who had played Hamlet at the Guthrie in the production they had done prior to that was Jelko Ivanek. Uh, and there was a connection there because later Santino uh, played the role of Stanley Jerome in the Broadway revival of Brighton Beach Memoirs, which uh, is the role that had been created by Jelko Ivanek in the first in the first production, the first Broadway production. So he, the, we were talking about all that stuff, and you know it was great, and the audience loved it. Two days later. I interviewed a young actor named Dan M. Boyer. I don't know if you, you guys all know him, but he's um, done a few things off-Broadway, and he is actually going to make his debut as a director with a show called Whirlwind that's going to be opening off-Broadway soon. But anyway, we were, I was talking with Dan, and we're talking, and it turns out that Dan went to Interlochen – and he uh, is a little younger than Santino, but he was there not, I guess, around that time. Uh, and believe it or not, he saw that production <laughs> of West Side Story with Santino and Michael Arden. And then um, so I was like, oh, that's a coincidence because, you know, he was just talking about that two days ago. And then that evening I went out with some friends to see a movie and then we went for dinner afterwards and we're sitting there and who walks in? but Jelko Ivanic. So, uh, you know, it really sometimes amazes me how small the world of show business is. And uh, there are all these really incredibly talented people in it. And it's so wonderful when we keep seeing them uh, grow and move on to further credits and challenges. And I was I, I really was very happy to be given the opportunity to talk with Santino. And I think everyone who was in the audience that day really feels like now we actually got to know him a bit, aside from his brilliance on stage in so many different types of roles. So um, that is awesome. And it was a one-night-only thing, so we can only... Th- uh, dream about it. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't recorded anywhere, was it? Yes, I did. I, I do have a recording. Actually, I can. I can uh, send it to you, and maybe I can uh, uh, identify a, a clip uh, if you would like to include it. Oh, that'd be great. Awesome. Yeah. May I introduce Santino Fontana? Thanks for coming. Yeah, that's fine. Is it? No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> they're, but they're all little. It's a little, you know, mom. So uh, the internet tells me that your uh, your ancestry is half Italian, one quarter Portuguese, and one quarter Spanish. That's correct. It's but, frightening what you can find out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the least of it, right? Uh, am I correct that that but that that both names are Italian? No. Uh, y- yes. Yes, I suppose. Although I went to. Uh, Spain and Portugal and Italy actually a couple years ago and every country we went to they said oh this is a, this is a Spanish name this is a Portuguese name this is an Italian they all said it so oh, okay. there must be something in the water and were you were you by any chance named after the character in The Godfather yeah my parents don't so I don't know if this I've ever told this story my parents won't admit it but there. So when I was in school, someone said that in school to me, and I didn't know the movie. 
uh, as a kid, and I asked my parents, and they denied it. And they're like, no, not at all. We got it in a book. But their wedding song was the Godfather theme song. <laughs> so when I found that out, I put the pieces together. Oh, and I was wow. like, why couldn't you name me Michael? <laughs> of all of the people, you choose him? What a terrible, I mean, great character, but terrible human being. Yeah. Right, right. Terrible. Well, they I tried calling me Sonny. Oh, really? They tried, but it didn't stick. Yeah. Oh, well, well, then, well, I think the evidence is clear. <laughs> yeah, they lied. They, de- <laughs> they definitely got it from the movie. And at Christmas, my dad was like, we should watch The Godfather. I was like, it's Christmas. No, we should not. <laughs> that makes no sense. There is that scene where they go to Radio City in the... In the, in the- Christmas time, right? Yeah, yeah but that's a stretch. <laughs> and then there's a lot of people who get killed. Yeah, yes, no, it's, it's terrible. True, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a great movie, but not for Christmas. <laughs> All right. Uh, so finally, this morning, before we uh, finish up, Jan, you got over to the Davenport Theater to see the Labute New Theater Festival, where we have uh, three—is it three pieces of Neil Labutes? It is. Three um, plays. Tell us about that. Well, I know a lot of people have trouble um, with Neil LeBute because of the subject uh, uh, matter of his plays, which can be, let's just cut to it, misogynistic. Um, but uh, I am a fan of his work. I, I may have trouble sometimes with some of the subject matter, but I think he uh, is a uh, excellent writer, excellent dramatist. However, uh, last year, uh, several theater companies, including MCC Theaters, the 59s, uh, 59 Theaters, and Theaters in LA, uh, severed ties with uh, Labute. We don't know exactly why. This clearly happened in the midst of, of the Me Too movement, and given the kinds of works that he's written, people have uh, theorized about why this might have happened, why these separations, these schisms might have happened, but we don't know. However, in these three plays, which were done at the Davenport, his works of previously been done uh, mainly at 59 East 59. These were done at the Davenport uh, uh, Theater, uh, a smaller uh, venue on 45th Street. Um, each of the three plays is deals with public shaming and how people uh, do respond, should respond to uh, what people say uh, uh, about them, how they're treated. The first, the the three plays, um, Labute is known for these uh, soliloquies where it's just one character talking uh, to the audience. And two of the works are these one character uh, uh, presentations. The middle uh, play is a two-hander. The first play that opens is called The Fourth Reich. And it begins with this uh, very sort of amiable man played by Eric Dean White, coming out, sitting, 
uh, talking to us. And he starts talking about the fact that basically Hitler got a bum deal. And the only reason that people are, or the primary reason that people are so negative about Hitler is because he lost the war. And if he hadn't lost the war, um, uh, he would have had a chance to write history and he would, people would see the good things that he had done. This is obviously meant to shock, and it does. There was a little bit of a gasp in the audience. Uh, he says to the audience, what do you think of that? Somebody shouted back at him. Um, I'll, and then as the play goes on, this character uh, eventually gets to a line where he says, and what about me? Should I be tossed out in the garbage because of one bad thing I did years ago when I was a kid? And that just seemed direct from LeBute to us. It's saying, why me? Why were my ties severed? Why am I being treated so badly? Maybe I did something, but I did it a long time ago. Then the second play, a woman, uh, the, the second one character play, which ends the, uh, the triptych and which was directed, the third play was directed by uh, Labute himself, is a young woman who is reflecting on the fact that her high school boyfriend was killed in one of those mass shootings um, and she dumped him when uh, at the end of their relationship, when they were just about to go off to college. And she's now wondering if this one little thing that she did led to his uh, eventual murder, sort of the butterfly effect thing. One thing you do leads to another, leads to another. Um, and she's wondering if she hadn't dumped him, maybe his life would have been different and he wouldn't have been in the location where the mass shooting occurred. Again, is one little thing that I did in the past, could it really lead to this disastrous effect? And then the middle play, and this one got me, uh, oh, the, the, the woman is played by an actress um, named Gia Cro Crovitin. And then the middle play, and the minute I sat down, looked at the playbill, and I saw the title, I went, oh, oh gosh, it's called Great Negro Works of Art. Now, it's not just the use of the word Negro, it's the fact that the fact that race seems to be involved, and I thought, Labute is such a provocateur. He really enjoys pushing the envelope. I don't know where this is going. Where it goes is it's a first date between a white woman and a black man who have met online. And um, no, it's not that they don't know one another's race or anything like that, but they meet at this exhibit called the Great or Negro works of art at a museum. And what happens is that everything each says becomes misinterpreted, um, either as a gender issue or as a race issue. And uh, so we, we, we have that tension. 
it seems it seemed to me uh, the plays were well done. Um, the actors in the two-hander, Brenda Meany and Keelan uh, Durrell Jones, also very good. But it seemed to me that this whole thing was his laying out his case for why he should not be uh, ostracized, be in exile. Um, and that message sort of overpowered uh, everything else uh, for me. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a typically uncomfortable um, uh, Neil Labute evening, um, but this extra layer adds an extra layer of real discomfort because we don't know what he did. We don't know why he's 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 asking us to forgive him or to overlook whatever he did. It's um, it's an uncomfortable evening. Yeah, I uh, have always thought from the time that it started that I I think it's incredibly strange that we got no details whatsoever about what this is. And I actually think that's counterproductive because it just makes people wonder. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do we think that uh, Neil LeBute will ever write the play uh, Who is Brett Kavanaugh? Oh, God. <laughs> if anyone will. Uh, <laughs> it'll be him. <laughs> Uh, or that young boy who is now internet famous for wearing a red hat in front of a Native American oh, yesterday at the, at the rally. Uh, oh. just, what times we live in. What times we it's, live in. There is not enough whiskey in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get on to trivia and Jenna starts drinking whiskey, let me remind you <laughs> that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There are many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you get finer podcasts, you can listen to Broadway Radio. Contact information for Jenna, for Michael, for Jan, for me, even for Peter can be found at the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com as well as links to some of the things we've um, talked about today, including the video from Brian Cranston on Instagram that I found. Yes. So, uh, oh, did you yeah, see me waving in the crowd? Yes, I did. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> because aside from producing the show, I have time to watch videos while we're talking. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what uh, all of you probably saw at Broadway Con while I was up there pounding away at my computer. I watch Instagram <laughs> videos. All right. Huh. So do you have the answer to trivia from two weeks ago? Yes, indeed. Well, what I asked was that um, in one of his films, Frank Sinatra sang a song that was nominated for an Academy Award. In it, he sang a certain word 10 times, a word that just happens to be the name of a famous Broadway musical. What's more, in the body of the song, uh, it includes the words that just happen to be the title of the opening number of that same musical. So I wanted people to tell me the name of the song from the film and the film itself, and then tell me the name of the musical and its opening number. Well, the song is My Kind of Town from the 1964 film Robin and the Seven Hoods. The uh, opening lyric is My Kind of Town, Chicago is. And that's the word that he mentions 10 times, Chicago. And deep in the song, he has the lyric, and it has 
All That Jazz, which, of course, is the opening number of Chicago. So Thomas Farrell was the first to get it, followed by Deb, Deb Popple, Brigadude, Jed Slaughter, Jeff Valenga, Jack Leshner, Harold Hoser, Zach Longstreet, and Tony Janicki. So uh, that's that. And now we will ask the new question, which is exactly – there is a producing artistic director of a theater company that centers on musical who has the same name as the character in a Strauss and Adams musical. What's the name? Okay, so if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Genesisa Fox, Michael Portantier, Jan Simpson, Peter Felicia... Uh, we'll throw in Natalie Nowak, Peter, uh, Matt Temanini as well. My name is James Reno, and thanks for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. The light in the piazza, tiny, sweet, and then it grows, and then... i